Welcome, adventurers. Karya and her associates have made their way to the shrine of Skellish Half-Handed, but it is well guarded. Will they gain entrance? Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Screaming, smoke, and screaming. Villages burned, people died, the flames burned hot. Guttural voices and heat. Karia woke drenched in sweat. Her eyes struggled to open and then to focus. Everything was a blurred red. Flames? No, rocks. The red rock of the gully that she sheltered in. Soul must be near dead overhead. The rocky floor was bright, the edge of the small bit of shadow she rested in, crisp. The stifling air was nearly a physical experience, like crawling through wool batting. It took an enormous amount of strength to sit up. Skellish's urn cradled in one arm like a child. She licked her cracked lips, her tongue feeling rough and overlarge. Even as she pressed her back against the rocky wall, arrow wound throbbing in her back. She felt the darkness of sleep climbing up her body, exhaustion turning weakened limbs to sand, head spinning, in a futile attempt to stay awake. She needed water. She needed... On the wind. Footfalls. The calls of Ukwala. Her chest became sand as well. Head lulled. The weight of sleep pulling her eyes closed. Smoke. Screaming and smoke. A day behind the blind passed in fitful rest. Fionn alone seemed unaffected by the heat, chest quietly rising and falling. He lay on the rocky ledge, curled into a ball, somehow giving off the air of a cat even in his halfling form. Karia could not get comfortable, no matter how she positioned herself, sleeping no more than a half a bell at a time. Often, as she woke and shifted, she would look to Koi, where she sat, back propped up against the cliff face. Koi's pale eyes usually looked back at her. Karia was never sure if the archer had not slept or was always awoken by her shifting. With the miserable conditions and the immediate proximity of the mission objective, the ten bells between soul rise and soul set seemed like two days. But soul did set. The brutal heat retreated slowly. They rose quietly. Fionn issued them their daily repast of a single berry, and then sipped water from skins. Tonight we watch, Kari whispered. Shift changes, guard movements, anything and everything. And watched they did. A bell after Sol had set, six Ukwala had made their way up the stairs again. Shortly after the arrival, all sixteen gathered on the ledge before the cave and surrounded the unlit bonfire. The exchange of greetings was brief. They gathered in a loose circle around the stacked wood. 
and one Ukwala with a gnarled wood staff stepped forward. The Ukwala holding the staff began pacing around the circle, stopping four times, once at each cardinal direction, north of the fire, east, south, west. At each stop it called out in a clear voice that echoed a statement or a prayer of some sort, before slamming the butt of the staff down on the ground and casting a handful of powder into the pile of wood. This was followed by the chanter throwing their head back, head lifting to the sky, and letting out a blood-curdling scream. After each scream, the remaining Ukwala also threw their heads back, beating a hand against their leathery chests with a percussive thud, and then answered the leader's scream. When the chanter had made their way to the point at which they started, they slammed the staff down again three times. Those gathered beat their chest three times. And then, through no mechanism that Karia could see, the bonfire burst into flames. The flames leapt twenty paces or more into the night sky. The gout of flame was tinged with bright greens and blue. The powder? Karia wondered. She didn't have time to ponder long, as the flames leaped high, washing the mouth of the cave and the side of the mountain in light. Goosebumps stippled her skin. From the valley below, in response to the fire's light, came a sound like nothing Karia had ever heard before. The burning hills screamed. In actuality, it was the thousands of Ukwala that dwell in the lands below. But even hundreds of feet above, it was loud. And Karia, calm and collected Karia, felt a surge of fear. She looked to Koi. The archer's body was tensed, eyes wide. Fear. She looked to Fion, whose face was split with a wide smile, eyes twinkling with delight. He looked to Karia and whispered, The fury of the seven tribes. And then, after a pause, Count yourself lucky. There are very few outside the seven tribes who have witnessed this. Karia wasn't sure luck was the word she would use. That noise would haunt her dreams. After the scream, the circle below broke up and the bonfire's flames dropped down, taking on the normal hues of a fire. The Ukwala shared some food and drink, and then ten of their number gathered their belongings and began the descent. Karia paid close attention, counting as soon as they left. It was two bars before she could neither hear nor see any sign of those that had just left. When she had lost sight of them, she turned her attention back to the ledge. Clearly visible in the mouth of the cave stood four of the Ukwala, large spear in hand. That must mean the other two were inside. After a bell, her theory was confirmed, as the two emerged from the cave. All talked briefly, and then they switched places, two new Ukwala heading into the cave, four staying at the mouth. The night passed in this manner, Ukwala shifting from inside the cave to out every bell, and just as Sol was about to rise, Tent Ukwala from the hills below. Tomorrow night, if all goes the same as today, we scout, she said, looking to Fion. The halfling shrugged and nodded at the same time, saying loud enough to hear, You're the boss. And then under his breath, not quite quiet enough not to hear, You soul-kissed bad woman. Another day passed in hot and fitful rest. They woke again as soul set and again watched the ritual that Fion referred to as 
the fury of the seven tribes. Caria had expected to be less scared of the scream, knowing what was coming, but she chilled with fear nonetheless. Not something you get used to, she thought. But the number of guards stayed the same. Shift rotation stayed the same. And so, in the dead of night, she made preparations to leave the blind and scout. She left nearly all behind except a length of rope and a healing potion. Fion and me are to scout for a possible way in, she whispered to all. Koi, you are to keep watch. No arrows unless it is life or death. Koi gave a mocking salute, which bothered Karia not at all. She would do what she was told, and that was all that mattered. Fion had pulled his medallion from his shirt, whispering a few words, and then placing his hands on Karia. Then regrouping, he began another chant, hands moving again. This time he held his hands up, and Karia felt the air around her change. Fion smiled. I'm sure you're plenty sneaky on the regular, but now... He left the thought unfinished, and then shimmered, changing to the caracal, his desert cat form. He then padded silently out of the blind on the narrow path and disappeared around the corner. Karia counted forty beats, watching the guards for any sign that Fion's movement had been noticed, before she herself slipped silently out of hiding, onto the path and around the corner. They made their way back to the mountainside, Fion pausing at the end of the narrow path to wait for Karia. She knelt, whispering to the cat. From the sides or stairs below must be a last resort. Let us see if we can find a way above the stone arch. From above is the only way I can see doing this without killing. The cat nodded and turned to lead the way. It was less than a hundred paces away before they found the beginning of a stony path that led along the mountainside and down. A path that would clearly lead to the shrine. Fion paused there but a moment, making sure Akari had seen it, before continuing and making his way higher up the mountainside. In less than a bar, the way ahead became too steep to go up any higher while still walking. Further elevation could only be achieved by climbing, an activity she preferred not to risk just yet. Instead, she began looking away south, trying to identify a seam or path in the rocky slope that would deliver them to a position above the cave. They moved painfully slow, Karya sometimes kneeling to pick up loose rocks and carefully place them off the path. It took two false starts before they found a route that met their needs. Where they had moved slowly before, now they crept at the pace of a shifting shadow, each foot placed with intention. No weight shifted until they were dead sure the footing would not fail. And so it was over the period of a bell that Caria and Fion found their way to a place just north and above the highest point of the stone arch that made up the entrance to the shrine. They were so close that the scuffles of the guards below could be heard. Caria signaled for Fion to stay. The cat acknowledged by sitting on its haunches, head looking down to the bonfire and ledge below. The last fifteen steps to the top of the arch were along a narrow crease no wider than a hand. A silent inhale, a silent exhale. And then quickly and without noise she made her way to the stone arch above the opening. There she stopped and listened, no change in the sound below. The top of the arch was roughly a foot wide, a luxury compared to what she had just crossed. She changed positions now, turning her back to the ledge below, facing into the mountain. 
Her eyes scanned the rocky surface above. About 15 feet overhead, she saw what she was looking for. Unwinding the rope from around her waist, she quickly tied a sliding knot at one end. In different circumstances, she might cast the rope, but she could not risk it now. Instead, she climbed nimbly up the steep rock face. When she arrived at her destination, she reached out, looping the knot over a worn place in the rock face that created a protrusion. She tightened the knot and then made her way back down. She placed her feet firmly atop the stone arch and then held her breath. This was it. Over 500,000 gold pieces rested on this moment. She gently increased the downward pull on the rope one bit at a time until her feet were placed against the side of the mountain and the rest of her body leaned out, all her weight supported by the rope. The rope would hold. Hand over hand, she pulled herself back to standing. Karya rotated, facing out again, running the rope around her chest and under her shoulders. She took a deep breath and looked to Fionn. The cat sat unmoving, eyes fixed on her. She looked up towards the cliff face where their hiding place was. She saw nothing. In fact, in the moonlight, it took her almost a bar to even identify the tree that indicated the ledge. That gave her some small comfort. She took another breath and squatted, then sat, legs spread wide, straddling the arch. Then, an inch at a time, using her chest as a pulley, she worked the rope, lowering her upper body out over nothing, face looking down to the ledge. After two bars, her body was parallel to the ground below. After four bars, she hung just shy of completely upside down. Karya's plans are literally hanging by a string. How will she fare? Join me next week for part four of Into the Fire.